This week on Life and Faith. I think we have bought a false, devastating myth about national identity being uh, identified with gambling. One of the most intimate places you can be with someone is at the moment of their death. This is the only world in which I live. I don't live in another world. I am autonomous and independent and self-sufficient and I will get to decide my good. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart and I'm with Justine Toe. Hey, Justine, how you hello, doing? Hello, hello. Now, have you ever won, Justine, a raffle or a prize or anything of that nature? I don't reckon I have, actually. <laughs> really? um, my dad used to love a bet and he would bet on the Melbourne Cup and then he would just ask me to pick some a, a horse. You don't remember a great victory in this no, area? No, no, it's not really something that I think <laughs> or care about. But what about you? Have you won something? Yeah, I have. I, I went through this little run of winning things. Oh. So I had three kind of raffly type things that I won in a row. I was in a triathlon and I won a bike helmet oh. you know, among all the other races. I then bought a CD and won a surfboard and still got that. And then I bought my wife, Michelle, a top or a dress or something at a store. And they said, oh, you can fill this in and go into this prize competition. I won her a year's worth of clothes. So wow. I always can imagine That's that was, crazy. made me popular. <laughs> so are we talking this happened in a matter of months that you won these yes. three things in succession? Yes. I need to say I haven't won anything since. And this right. was a long time ago. Okay, well, let me take you back to that shining time when you were the <laughs> darling of the universe. Did it make you want to keep trying your luck? <laughs> yes and no. Like, it made me think, oh, it's worth entering these competitions because <laughs> sometimes you win. Although, I have to admit, it didn't translate to me then entering a whole lot of these things. So, for some reason, I couldn't quite make that step. But I can see how it could easily because you, if you have a little bit of a win, it does make you think, oh, it's, it is possible and that big prize mm. could be there for me. Well, I do remember one time my dad was betting on the Melbourne Cup and he'd already went to the TAB to kind of sort out his bet and then he drove home and then something possessed him and he drove back to the TAB. <laughs> to go again. <laughs> to go again. Yeah. But then when he won, that high that he experienced was significantly enhanced by the fact that he'd gone back and taken an extra punt, if I can yes. put it that way. So I could see the kind of effect that it had on him. And it seems to me that he's not alone, you know, in, in being really mm -hmm. into this. We've got lotteries, lotto, scratchies, horse racing, greyhounds, the trots. What what are the trots? You know, trotting. So What um, is trotting? Don't well, horses, horses do that? But they're in a they have a carriage thing and someone sits on the back of this I'm going to talk as if I know what I'm talking about, <laughs> this sort of buggy thing. Right. And it's like horse riding, but they're limited in what they can only trot. They can't gallop. Oh, my gosh. So I, this is all, you haven't this seen is, this? This is all crazy to me. I'm sorry. Um, but, of course, we've got the casino and pokies. I am more familiar with this sort of thing. It seems that, you know, if we can kind of understand what is important, I suppose, to us as a people, the fact that we have so many different avenues open to us to yes. place a bet surely signifies something. It does, I think. And, and for me, it does say something powerful about who we are as a people. And we want to sort of look at that today. Even if you're not into betting in any sense, you can't escape it either. I watch a lot of sport, as you know, Justin, and sports betting is so ubiquitous. You just cannot get away from it. You can't watch a game of footy, watch the cricket, anything like that without being 
bombarded with all this betting information. And Are we talking, though, like integrated into the sports cast that you're watching or is it in the ads? Both. Bo- right. It's okay. both. Definitely both. So even with a lot of intentionality, you couldn't escape it. I do remember one time you mentioned that your son, Luke, at the time quite young, could tell you the odds or something. <laughs> yeah. On- <laughs> yeah, there was a bit of a – we had this famous uh, trip to a grand final and uh, we, I was in a – car, like a seven-seater car with a bunch of mates who were heading out to this. And I remember one of the guys said, oh, I wonder what the odds are for today or which team's paying what. And then from the very back of the car, this little eight-year-old squeaks oh, up, wow. Melbourne are paying $1.50 and the Bulldogs are $3.25. And all these guys looked at each other like, what on earth? But this was sort of an indication of how much this affects you. Like, does it affect kids? Are they hearing this message? Absolutely, they are. Yeah, well, they're soaking it up, really. And they're reflecting back, aren't they? Like yes. what they're hearing and, and, and learning. And, and from not the from world. me. Like, it's not like I'm, I'm into this sort of stuff are anyway. Are you sure? Are you sure? Simon? <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, Justin, what? is the impact of all this? Is it just harmless fun? Does the Australian obsession with gambling suggest anything deeper in terms of our collective psyche and what we think is the shape of the good life? And is it just the killjoy Christians who would even want to talk about this topic? I think after this year, we have to say, no, it's not just the killjoy Christians. Mm. Of course, this year, there's been the Victorian Royal Commission into Crown Casino and its suitability to run an operation. And the Royal Commissioner, Ray Finkelstein, delivered the verdict on Crown that it had acted unethically, illegally, exploitatively, and was basically unfit to operate a casino. And yet, he said, they can still operate because they're critical to the economy and it would sink too many small businesses. So you have two years to clean up your act. And it's like, wow, that is interesting. Incredibly damning findings. And yet, as you say... They continue to to operate. So to try to make sense of all this, we thought it would be a great idea to get in Tim Costello. Tim is a senior fellow with us at CPX. He's a lead spokesperson for the End COVID for All campaigns, a very busy person. And he's also someone who's been an extremely vocal critic of gambling for decades, especially poker machines. Yes, Tim has been protesting Crown ever since the beginning, really. And he's had a front row seat to how its influence has played out over the years. And so we started by asking him, what are his thoughts about the Royal Commission's findings? The uh, things I started saying about Crown 25 years ago, that there's money laundering going on, there's uh, enabling of organised crime, there's deliberate predatory targeting of uh, particularly people from poorer postcodes with the Crown pokies, the incentives, that they were the only pokies you could play endlessly day and night. So the the findings uh, was that Crown is completely unfit to hold a licence by the uh, Royal Commissioner uh, for all the words you just read out, illegality, exploitation, disgraceful behaviour. That would kill any other business from operating and yet it got a two-year probationary licence with a special manager appointed by the state who can veto the board and veto uh, Crown CEO, unheard of in Australian history ever for a private company to have a state-appointed special manager with those powers. And if that special manager after two years uh, says Crown hasn't reformed, they lose their licence. That was the, the final result. Very puzzling to all of us. 
So it's a very special situation we have here, Tim. But I want to come, we'll come back to that in a moment. But tell us a bit about your early protests against Crown, the nature of those. You got yourself in a bit of trouble with this, right? Yes. So uh, early on, I uh, had organised some of my Urban Seed and other church members to do prayer walks around the temporary Crown Casino. We believed it was a, uh, a spiritual force. Mm. Then uh, when Crown Casino's permanent uh, site was opened and uh, spent at least $20 million on a party and we're all meant to celebrate this wonderful advent of Crown Casino, I organised the Not the Casino Party and uh, <laughs> Rachel Griffiths, the actress, uh, came and made a wonderful speech why she's proud to be un-Victorian. She had stripped naked on the red carpet, well, topless, not naked, on the red carpet at the uh, opening of Crown Casino with her niece holding up a placard, a little girl saying, need not greed. And Rachel uh, said later, I hope the Reverend Tim Costello wasn't offended with my protest. I've been following what he's doing. So uh, we're not going to ask you if you were, Tim, or whether you decided to go topless as well. (laughs) I averted my eyes. Um, (laughs) But at the Nocta Casino party, we had Archie Roach and my friend, the chocolate. My my friend, friend the the chocolate cake. Yeah, and so many musicians supporting us. Jeff Kennett had called me a leftist cleric. I was un-Victorian. He was uh, going very hard after me. So there there was a bit of conflict. And, Tim, I remember you um, were in an interview, a radio interview, on this topic, and that didn't go well either? No. So 3AW, the Neil Mitchell program, had uh, a broadcast studio in the uh, the gleaming new Crown Palace. He asked me, as the leading critic, to have a look at Crown and then uh, started saying, well, I asked you to have a look. It's a fantastic facility, you have to admit, Tim, for... Uh, for Melbourne, and I said, there's so much money and power here, it will buy everyone. It'll buy the media, it'll buy politicians. Mitchell said, you're accusing me of being bought. Nobody buys me. I said, look, there's so much power and money here, Neil, you wouldn't even know if you'd been bought. <laughs> and he threw me, out of the, uh, threw me out of the radio studio at that point. Tim, why were you so opposed to this money-making venture that would lift Victoria out of the economic doldrums, as the Premier Jeff Kennett claimed. I I hadn't a a personal vendetta against gambling. Funnily enough, my grandfather was an SP bookie and my (laughs) father could always pick a winner at uh, the races. He grew up near Flemington. Um, My work as a lawyer and as a Baptist minister in St Kilda, where I started back in the um, early 80s, A woman walked in just after pokies had been introduced, uh, asking me to represent her. She'd lost $60,000 stealing from her employer because of her addiction to pokies. Some of them at Crown Casino, but she played in various places. I represented her. She got four years jail. And I remember visiting her in prison. Her name was Zlata Petrovich and saying, how does a middle-aged woman, happily married, doesn't smoke or drink, has never been in trouble with the law, end up in jail for four years. And the penny dropped. The machines she was playing are built for addiction. They turn legal citizens literally into criminals. 
So that was my emotional uh, crossing of the line. And I started then to see that the whole politics of the state under Jeff Kennett's gaming-led revolution were organised around Crown. Uh, it grew to twice the size of what was allowed in the tender brief. You had to have the Grand Prix in Melbourne in Alba Park next to Crown to fill Crown. Uh, its hotel and the planning decisions, the cultural uh, dominance, uh, all was now being absorbed into crowns. So that's where it all began for me. Yeah, I really was struck in your piece in the Saturday paper, Tim. You describe uh, Crown as too big and too powerful and even picking up on the language that we've heard out of the GFC, too big to fail. Can you give us a picture um, of how critical Crown is to Victoria's coffers? something like more than 10% of state taxes are raised through pokies, this kind of thing? Yeah, well, uh, pokies uh, raises $2.2 billion, and that's about 12% of uh, state taxes that the Victorian government can raise. Crown is only $200 million in taxes. It's very small compared to the $2 billion from the pokies in pubs and clubs everywhere else. But Crown has always been able to culturally dominate the city. It's the biggest public building in Australia, twice the size of our federal parliament. It is in the prime site within the city. It uh, then sells itself saying the biggest single site employer, 12,000 employees. Now, that's nonsense. Most of the employees are people who are sub-lessors of Crown so they're all the restaurants and food chains and uh, so not directly employed. Yeah. No, absolutely. They only share a, a landlord, but Crown has always passed itself off in that way. And yes, too big to fail has become really the reason the Crown still is on probation that any other business in Victoria, after findings like that, would have had a license revoked. I remember you saying as well that the Logies, the Walkley Awards, the Brownlow Medal are all hosted at Crown. So it's it's quite a, an intrinsic part of the, the life of the city, isn't it? Absolutely. The extraordinary capture of the city of Melbourne. And I'm old enough to remember when um, pre-Crown, Melbourne took great pride, almost conservative pride, in the MCG, the Victoria Market, the wonderful Victorians' streetscapes, um, suddenly for it to be now dominated by Crown. It's why when um, the Catholic Archbishop, uh, one Christmas day, when Jeff Kennett, who, you know, flirted with being a Catholic, I think his wife did briefly, went along to a Christmas Day Mass and the Catholic Archbishop said, we won't be dominated by the uh, uh, cultural symbols of Crown. Kennett stormed out. Because Kenneth couldn't really attack the Catholic Archbishop, he just started attacking me and boxing. Well, the call started on Christmas Day. I was having lunch with my brother and my parents and Kenneth's attacking me again and it continued for the next week, really. I think that was a really spiritual moment at one level. What is dominant in the culture of Melbourne? And to criticise, as the Catholic Archbishop did, the dominance of Crown, literally led to a political tantrum. So, yeah, its dominance is extraordinary. You did mention that Crown Casino's footprint is more than twice the size of Parliament House. I found this 
absolutely shocking. And, and in your article, you made the case that both Labor and Liberal state premiers have in some ways been captured by these kinds of interests. Can you give us a grab of how that's played out over the last 25 years? Yes. Yeah, so um, Joan Kerner, a Labor premier, uh, actually gave the licence for Crown because the Victoria was broke. The uh, Labor government were in desperate straits. She lost uh, that election and Kenneth became the Premier. Colonel later said, the worst decision of my political life, giving Crown a licence. She deeply regretted it. Kenneth then led the gaming-led recovery. He said, um, Victoria is going to have a gaming-led recovery. It was Crown, it was Pokies. He became the chief spruker and uh, when the temporary casino opened, Kenneth uh, being there and saying, this casino is a beacon of hope in Melbourne. It is the new spirit of Melbourne. Oh, that's frightening. And hope and spirit are very important words for me. And uh, that electric shock, I remember it, went through my body. He's talking about a casino. Labor were very much uh, a rabble at that point, uh, a very small uh, parliamentary representation. I was being called the de facto leader of the opposition for taking <laughs> on Kenneth. Yeah. And Labor uh, MPs would ring me and say, good on your team, when we get elected, we're going to uh, clip Crown's wings. That's shocking. As soon as they got elected in 1999, I was shocked. Those same Labor ministers had their fundraisers for the party almost immediately at Crown, fell into line with Crown, took huge donations from Crown. Both sides of politics have been captured. This is Life and Faith, and Justine and I are speaking with Tim Costello about gambling, casinos, sports betting, and poker machines, which for Tim is the biggest threat of all. What can we learn about ourselves when we step back and look at the place gambling has in our community and our national psyche? Here's Justine to draw out some of this from Tim. I want to quote you back to yourself. You wrote this in an op-ed earlier this year. You wrote, No conversation about gambling in Australia begins without a cultural nod that Australians of all backgrounds love a bet. It is in our DNA, supposedly, and this is our cultural myth, as if at birth, unlike other nations, we are baptised in the eucalyptus oil and a punt. I love that. <laughs> so you go on, two flies up a wall, two up in the Anzac tradition, a horse race that stops the nation, and so it goes. This is what it means to be Australian. Now, we typically think it's individual people who are vulnerable to gambling addiction, but you seem to be suggesting that gambling has a powerful grip on Australian identity. Yeah, I, I think we have bought a false, devastating myth about national identity being uh, identified with gambling. And until I wrote a book back in 2000 called Want a Bet, I believe that too, that Australians, uh, of all people, just love a punt more than others. I discovered the Kiwis, Irish, the Chinese, the English, all boast about being the greatest gamblers on earth, that it's a complete myth that Australia has taken a step further by saying, and we're going to have the greatest number of pokies on earth, 20% of the world's pokies, uh, are in Australia. 75% of the world's pokies in clubs and pubs are in Australia. Most pokies are just in casinos. Um, so we have 
dangerously married a false myth to self-identity such that if Americans are known by the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, and we look at them and shake our heads, the rest of the world looks at us and shakes their heads saying they are totally captured by gambling. It's why we now have 40% higher losses per head, where number one losses in the world, 40% higher than the country that comes second. That national false myth, destructive myth, has captured us. Tim, you're very critical about how much gambling is such a part of ordinary uh, life in Australia. We see it all over sports advertising now. It's absolutely everywhere. You can't escape it. What are the spiritual dimensions to this? You mentioned this earlier. It does feel like you seem to think that there's a sort of spiritual darkness attached to this ubiquitous gambling. Yes, I do. And I think it offers a, some spiritual false uh, substitutes. Uh, that sense that ordinary little nobody me, when I sit in front of a poker machine and uh, the five pyramids come up and the lights go off and there's a jackpot, I have been blessed. In fact, I have received grace. (laughs) Someone up there surprised me and made me feel special. So I think both at a national level, certainly in Crown in Melbourne, a city level, the darkness and the hold on the culture, where all the cultural events happen at Crown, where you can't criticise Crown until recently, and at a very personal level, that sense of grace with the win. Secondly, the false substitute of community. Where does a middle-aged woman whose husband falls asleep in front of the fire in the footy go if she wants to dress up, go somewhere safe, or if she's on her own? It's a club. They open the door. They know your name. As you start to play the pokies, they'll bring you a coffee. You think it's okay to go there on my own because so many others are on their own. It doesn't feel awkward. And there's community. So much so that um, green uh, spaces where new suburbs are going up, the first thing state governments now do is license a pokies club to get community on the cheap. Gambling has now claimed it is the giver of community. And this is a pretty grim form of community, Tim. Well, it's a community built on uh, predatory behaviour. We often hear gamble responsibly as if it's an individual, a, a pathetic individual. No, it's the machine. We know this machine is built for addiction. So community brought to you by the addiction from pokies machines <laughs> is very grim. Can there not be some community, like get a bunch of my mates, go to the horse races? It can be a bit of fun, right? Yeah, so we certainly know in Victoria when we got pokies in 1992 that uh, you could do damage with horse racing, but with horse racing you at least knew the odds. You knew if it was 30 to 1 you are going to blow your money. You don't know it at all with pokies. Secondly, before pokies, women constituted in Victoria less than 7% of problem gamblers. After the introduction of pokies, women are now 53% of problem gamblers. And it's still women who, by and large, pay the rent, do the shopping, manage the finances. This is why the ripple effect is so devastating with so many women becoming addicted by pokies. With that community safety feel, they didn't go to horse racing and TABs before. Tim, you mentioned the the lady that you defended. Did she fit into that story you've just painted of 
um, women kind of drawn to certain forms of community and, um, and the money's going in that direction to the pokies rather than other things. Yes, she did. I mean, Zlata's marriage survived and she's got two lovely daughters uh, and a son. Uh, so she wasn't uh, totally alone, but when, when pokies got introduced without consumer warnings in 1992, everyone just thought they're harmless. They're like bingo, which you can't really get addicted to, or lotto. Her story, uh, I don't remember if it was for social reasons she went to the club, but it's a very common story. That moment when you have your first win, you feel so special. She just felt so special. You never actually remember your losses, but that win, an early win, is always a very common refrain down the path of addiction. Mm. And it strikes me that when you mention grace, right, like it's a dis- it's a very distorted form of grace when you win at the pokies. You feel that um, you're special, that something in the universe or someone in the universe has kind of blessed you. And also what you were saying about community, there's a real distortion, isn't there, of what I guess people of faith would say are some of the the huge benefits of religion, but they're being deployed in this way and distorted in this context with pokies and that promise of of a win, promise of feeling connected to something bigger than yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Look, all of us live out of a story. The uh, Christian story that I indwell is that uh, God's grace um, comes to me without the expectation that I've got to earn it, that uh, uh, I've got to play a game (laughs) and community comes to me as belonging and gift. The story of the national myth of Australians love a pump and if you're going to find community, it'll be down at the local pub or club with pokies and you'll experience some grace down there is an alternative story, I think a false story. And a bit of an empty story. But Tim, how do you resist the call of being a bit of a wowser, moral police, come on, typical that Christians want to stop people having fun. And you have been called this, haven't you, Tim? (laughs) I have, yeah. And worse. I I like the fact that uh, someone way back at the turn of the century, wowser stands for we only want social evils remedied. And I thought, well, if that's what it means, I'm happy to be a wowser. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone should be. As I said earlier, I didn't uh, come to gambling with a moral um, Christian view. Uh, I wasn't a gambler, but I didn't. I wasn't. Um, I, I didn't oppose even pokies coming into Victoria when it happened. It wasn't an issue for me until I met Zlata and saw the damage and addiction. For me, it, it's more a social justice issue. I realised very early on that most of the pokies were in the poorest postcodes. They certainly weren't in Turak and Malvern. And it was transferring money from the poorest into the pockets of the captains of industry who lived in the rich suburbs, and uh, that this was just profoundly unjust. That's the motivation rather than a moral horror at gambling. And I wanted to ask as well, is there something that's uniquely harmful about gambling? We don't seem to have the same attitude to alcohol, you mentioned the machines are so addictive, the pokies are so addictive. Is that what makes gambling so destructive? Or is there something about gambling that is particularly a problem? Yeah, it depends which form of gambling you're talking about. So people don't really get addicted or do damage with lotto or raffles or bingo uh, or a whole heap of 
uh, at times recreational gambling. Uh, look, the, the pokies, um, in Australia, 24 billions lost each year, 15 billion comes from pokies. Pokies, uh, we now know, when you sit in front of them, the uh, lights going off and the sounds release dopamine from the brain that hits the pleasure centre of the brain with the force of cocaine. They are built for addiction. So that form of gambling is profoundly dangerous. I have a drink. I know I can drink too much, but I also know one glass of red wine um, can be okay for me. A flutter and gambling, that can be okay, but it's less than 25% of the population that ever play the pokies. Yet over 50% of the revenue coming from pokies is coming from addicted people, according to the Productivity Commission. They are so profoundly addictive. That's the difference, I think. Tim, when you think back to the birth of Crown Casino in Melbourne, that brought one kind of culture to the scene. If we could go back, I wonder what might have been a better option for Melbourne, do you think? Well, we had the option, Simon. That site was to be the Melbourne Museum. And uh, one of the first acts of Jeff Kennett was to kick the Melbourne Museum up to Carlton where nobody can find it. It, By the way, it's a magnificent museum when you do find it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And put a casino, the biggest public building in Australia, on that site. Yeah, and all the things that can go with that. So there could be, you can imagine, art galleries and music and, and just the whole culture that brings to a city does feel like a missed opportunity. Yeah, no, it really reoriented the whole city in terms of uh, what it stands for, uh, who who's expendable in this city. It was shocking. You know, the Melbourne Museum is a magnificent uh, space with coffee shops and galleries and music. If that was at South Bank, that would have been consistent with the Melbourne I love. Tim, I'm a bit of a distant observer, but I hear a lot of clubs will often trumpet their credentials by saying, oh, you know, we pour all these profits back into the community. I have a feeling you don't buy that or you're going to complicate that, that, that easy story. Yeah, that's the biggest rot going on, Justine. The um, money that clubs say they're putting back in is a tax that shouldn't ever be allowed to be branded by the club. Government should say this is our tax and we're distributing it to community groups on an impartial basis. One, it's very low. It's very minimal. Club CEOs, by the way, are on half a million to $750,000, far more than the Prime Minister. Mm. And uh, for them to take uh, what is a state government tax and dole it out to community groups and often buy their support and silence is a complete rort. There's no one else lining up to give the footy jerseys for your footy club, whereas sometimes with the advertising and stuff, they will do that. Uh, That's a problem that we get into these positions where we're reliant on this kind of revenue. Well, the state government could actually buy the footy jerseys for the clubs. It's a tax the clubs have to pay, and they just say, look, we gave it here, here, and here. Western Australia, by the way, which has no pokies outside Burswood Casino, has stronger clubs, high levels of sport and recreation, high levels of participation than the the East Coast with all the uh, pokies and clubs. So, you know, they've, they've really, they've really bought us. This has been Life of Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe. 
thanks to Tim Costello, the leftist cleric, as Jeff Kennett famously labelled him. Thanks to Tim for all that he does working on behalf of vulnerable people. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and hope that you will send it along to a friend or two. We've been doing this survey asking you, our loyal listeners, what you think about life and faith and how we can make it better. And plenty of you have said in the responses we've received so far that you don't tend to send it on to others. Well, we are sure that there is something in this episode that you think someone else can benefit from. So maybe we would like you to really consider sending it along to someone and also leaving us a rating or review. And also do look out for that survey. It's posted in the show notes as well as on social media. We want you to give us some feedback on how you think life and faith is going and what we might do for the next year. Please check that out. Next week. Desire is a basic human yearning. We see desire in the newborn baby for physical and psychological needs. We see desire in the dying person, even if they've lost the capacity for speech. Desire is always there to the, from the moment of birth to the last gasp of our breath. 